Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We're so glad that you've joined us again for Ed's Up, and this is a wonderful program today. We're so fortunate to have Dr. Iomi Aruka with us, who is going to talk a little bit about her experiences in the, a lot of different contexts of racial inequity, as well as what can be done to help correct some of the problems that systemic racism has brought about and how now with conversations being more upfront about it, we hope to have a good conversation with her. So, Dr. Aruka, we thank you for being with us. She is currently the Chief Research Innovation Officer at HighScope. And so now I think she is going to be able to give us a little background about herself and then tell us a little bit about what she's been doing and what she is going to be doing in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm really excited. I can just sit here and just talk to y'all ladies today. Um, so I am the Chief Research Innovation Officer at High School Education Research Foundation, which is best known for the pair preschool study. And I would say my role has been to really guide their research direction, to always put research and evaluation sort of front and center but to also put it in front of center in terms of implications for practice and possible. Like there's no purpose of research if it's not going to change children's and families and communities in the workforce life, right? Like that is the whole point. So for me, it's been to really think about are there new partners, new innovation around research, new questions that we can be asking to make sure that we're centering sort of children and families. And for me, especially as a black woman in America, it's always centering around issues about racial equity, around opportunities and those kind of things. So that's really been a focus of mine at High Scope. And, you know, and luckily they've allowed me to really engage in a lot of work with them and other partners. And so um, I, while I've been there for a little bit over three years, I will be transitioning sadly to leave them and to return to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So I was there before. I'm going to return home a little bit, um, but to really actually continue the work I've been doing around racial equity to start a new program area at the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute that has been also known for another large long-term study called Abbasidarian. I'll be starting an early childhood racial health and equity program and also be positioned at the public policy. Because to me, we can't change anything if we're not changing policies at the national and local level. So that's, for me, I'm just continuing my journey to really hopefully be part of changing systems to really improve the lives and well-being of our children, of our families, of our workforce, and for all of us who want our children to be successful in life, which is really hopefully all of us. Well, again, we're so happy that you're going to visit with us, and I want to remind everybody I'm Kathy Grace, and Dr. Melody Musgrove is also going to be joining the conversation. And so let me just ask you a, a question concerning a new book that you've just written, Don't Look Away. Embracing Anti-Bias Classrooms, and uh, it's a very intriguing title, Don't Look Away, and I'd like for you just to give us a little, I guess, summary of some of the thoughts that you're going to lay out in that in that publication, and I will mention that it is available on Amazon and is on, I'm sure, a lot of uh, different book companies, a book list. But this is a very important book, I would think, for people to add to their libraries. So could you give us a little information about what you would want us to take away with regard to the intent of the book? 
Yes. And so, and so I w- first, before I would answer your question, Kathy, I want to say I'm also a mother of a three-year-old and a seven-year-old who are going through virtual learning. So they're always around. So audience members, you may hear my children, be my children. But to your question about the book, so this book actually was released in April of 2020. And yes, you can get it everywhere. And I've heard even Target, yay. And so think about it, most books, it takes a few years to actually write it and actually get it into stores and in hands. And so this is clearly way before... Sadly, the, the racial awakening of America, at least I should say white America, no, no offense, because we've always known it was here. And so the whole purpose of the book and the reason we call it Don't Look Away, because the issue of racism, anti-racism, bias is one that is people just psychologically just are like, I don't want it. I don't see. I don't see race. I don't want to talk about it. And so we were like, people have to really embrace it, lean in. And we don't want people to look away because when you look away you are in many ways disenfranchising a lot of people who need you to pay attention, to stay focused and stay on the journey because this is a journey. And so the whole goal for the Don't Look Away book is to really honor the history and legacy of early kin education. It has some strong legacies around providing opportunities for young children, particularly black children, but it also has some legacies around racism that we have to acknowledge. We also wanted to support, we wanted to support our early child workforce. We wanted to give them tools to help them be part of supporting young children's lives and well-being. And in particular, we want to ensure that especially our black children who, I mean, again, many children of color are, are challenged by, you know, inequities and racism in particular, but black children in particular and their families experience high levels of toxicity. And we want to make sure that people acknowledge that and fully lean into that information. And we want to just create a less biased society, right, that values everybody regardless of their race, ethnicity, language, et cetera. So for us, it really was to, to serve as a tool for our early childhood community, particularly those who are coaches, teachers, administrators, leaders, and also those who work with families, right? We, we, so it's not an end all at all of books, but we hope it really has some really clear, practical tools in it. For example, we have uh, key features of what is anti-bias education. Or what is white privilege and institutional racism in early childhood? And what kind of observation tool can you use to capture young children's racial identity or attitudes? Um, And so we really have some, what I would say are both nuggets, but also things that teachers and educators should think about as they sort of go down the journey of anti-racism, racial equity, et cetera. So we hope that people can receive that well. Well, when I saw the title, it really grabbed my attention. Don't look away because I was reminded of the research on how teachers tend not to engage with children who they don't look them in the eye. They don't call on them on them as often for children who are culturally and linguistically diverse. And so the, the title of your book really caught my attention because it reminded me of that research. So since you mentioned it, what what does it look like in early childhood programs when we see racial inequity? Talk, talk specifically about what that looks like. Sure. That's such a great question, Dr. Musgrove. So I would say it has many different looks to it, right? So we can talk about just the environment. What kind of environments are children walking into? So think about it, right? There's people think about, you know, you know, childcare programs or centers or schools, but I say first look on the outside, like what is the community like? What are the opportunities like? What, you know, are we talking about sort of even are the street, are the streets crumbled up? Are the lights working? Are there border buildings? So looking at the, even at the outside of the building or the communities that it's in, that's one beginning to tell you, are we disenfranchising children for being able to feel like I am part of a community that really loves me and loves my experiences. Just one example. Other one is walk into the building. What kind of pictures are available? Who's there? Do they look like me? Do they sound like me? You know, or do they even, are they happy to see me? 
right? Is there a sense of, I, I feel connected. I feel that emotional grandma bosom hug. What kind of interaction are they feeling? Go into the classrooms. Again, do we feel, do they get a sense of, oh my goodness, how are you, Johnny? We're so happy to see you. Do they get that level of love happening? And then to your point, are people, are they being looked at? Like, Sit down, looking at your eye level. Um, are the books representative of who they are, their community, their experiences, children who look like them, families that are like them? Um, and then are they having those conversations, right? Like where is like, I may not understand everything you're saying, Marcos, but I'm trying to understand it. And I'm going to sit here with you and go back and forth with you rather than saying, hi, bye, see you later, right? Those sort of one-line items that we kind of throw around. So to me, the, the issues of inequities, we, we actually see a lot. I mean, I have been to many, many classrooms. And when you have a particular lens of racial equity, you actually begin to see things even in programs and schools where there are actually black majority kids and where there's actually black majority workforce. So this is not just white teachers. You know, this actually, because we all of us drink the same Kool-Aid about who deserves the best. Um, and so, so all of us have to always be sort of aware of our biases that are just seeped in everything. So there's many ways you see it, the books, the interactions. And unfortunately, if we don't have the lens, the new, the glasses to look through these things, then we assume that it's okay that children are sort of ignored. It's okay that the books look pretty, the books are kind of random and there's not really a sense of connection. There's, it's in typical English language. There's not those sort of books that connect children to the, to the lived experiences. So in many ways, we can see it all from walking in to leaving the back door to the front door. Well, one of the things that uh, I'd like for you just to talk a bit about, because we hope we have a, a broad audience, uh, not only just educators, but folks that are in other professions, folks that are uh, choosing to work at home and, and stay at home in, during this time of COVID with the virtual education situation that many families are facing. What would be your advice to parents, uh, particularly now if they're maybe spending more instructional time at home uh, with their children to help them become aware of some of these things you've just brought up that you've seen in classrooms, because research tells us that children become, as hard as it is to say, potentially racist at a very early age, like three. And so what can we do to really just not look away and address this in a straightforward way? Oh, great question. I feel like the, I mean, I, it's funny, I didn't say that either, but I do think don't look away could actually also apply to families and parents, especially not because they are the children's first teacher. So that really, in the end of it, is really important to know. And I would say what families and parents in particular could do is to actually look at who are your children's friends, right? Like who do they, who do they normally see, right? And then again, don't forget children start to, we know by the age of nine months at least, children begin to actually follow um, those who look like their caregiver. So they all they see is pretty much, you know, a white caregiver or black. that's who they actually follow. So there's always a preferential treatment just because of the way, you know, child development, brain development works. So we know that. And so that means that if your whole entire environment is really monolith and your books are kind of monolith, then that means that children aren't being exposed. And I would say particularly for white families who actually have the privilege to not actually ever have to worry about books that don't look like them or music that don't look like them or, or sort of environments that are not really catered to them, that's more, they have to have to be much more intentional about ensuring that even the artifacts that they have, the friends, the pediatricians, the grocery, like all like your environment for white people, it could be so segregated in many ways. And so the exposure to me is something that white families should really think about. So how much am I exposing 
my children to others, especially in not in the stereotypical kind of way, like, oh, all the black people are athletes and all the Latinos or in particular menial jobs, right? But showing the imagery of where everybody can be in different positions um, across the racial angle. So I think it's, it's for parents to look at what books do you have in your bookshelf? Like literally, that's probably one of the easiest things you could do. What is in your bookshelf? And I think that's really important that that children begin to see the others are just like them. They just have a different coloration. Um, I think that's one important thing. And also parents begin to see who are they talking to, right? And do they normally, even on your video chats, like a lot of us who are able to work from home and through, you know, the video conference, uh, we, they see pretty much your whole entire world looks just like you. That's the message that they send. Or when they ask you questions about sort of skin color, you're like, oh my God, don't say that. That's another message. So to me, parents actually have to lean in and really embrace the fact that their children are asking these questions and not shy away from it. Um, and, but there's different ways you can actually have these conversations, both for white families and families um, of color in particular. So during this time, what, what do you think families need from their early childhood providers? What, what are they looking for? What do they need to get, during, especially during this time, from early childhood education providers? Oh my goodness. I feel like what they should get is a level of humility, a level of humility and grace. Like, I mean, as a mother, my son is here around here. You probably hear him rustling about. And we, like, we literally are going a little crazy. And I think we should, like, I think providers should just say, you know what? I need to give you a little grace. And at the same time, I need to also remind myself that in some ways we're becoming new teachers. We're having to actually negotiate boundaries and do all these sort of triple duty. And so I think there's a little bit of level of grace. And I think that education should check in on parents, right? Like, yes, I know that their first concern are the kids, but I think it's important to also just check in on how are you doing? What can I do to make it easier? Um, and, you know, now they're both really the child's educator. Like, they're literally all the child's teacher. So what would you do to a co-teacher but ask them, hey, what worked? What hasn't worked? What should we do differently? What would make your life easier? I think this is where early childhood actually writ large has to start thinking, how do we, how can we become much more family centered? We say that we are, but are we? And I'm hoping that this is an opportunity for educators and parents to be much more in line that now I know what you mean that my son moves around a lot and it's okay. So now I can say, hey, it's okay if he moves around, but he's actually still paying attention. So I think it's, it's that level of understanding that now that we're kind of in a similar setting, we see how our children are functioning. So I, I do think a little bit of humility and grace is going to be important. Um, I do think a little bit of checking on the families themselves, not just about, oh, do you have enough food to eat and all that, but just how are you doing, Miss Smith? You know, or is there anything I could do to help you? Are there resources I can provide to you? Um, are there networks I can I can provide to you? Like, right, can you create a group of parents who may have some shared similarities or some shared needs or support and create those kind of groups where it's not the teachers driving it, but the families are driving it. So I think there's more that teachers can do. That doesn't mean teach me something. It's just just check in on me and make sure that I'm okay. Because if I'm not okay, Johnny over here is going to be in trouble probably. So not in a bad way, but just that we, we as parents need the support at all levels. And just like teachers need the support from us as parents, I think we have to begin to create that level of homeschool partnership that's really about mutual res- uh, respect, but also just support because this is hard. Like having kids is hard and having to teach them and work is hard. So I think it's, it's what we could do is, is do the same thing. Right now, when um, if if parents have children that are actually back in person in, in schools, 
I think a lot of parents are feeling very disconnected right now because for the most part, parents are not allowed in the schools. Parents have to stay in their cars when they drop off the children. So they're not able to go in and see their child's teacher and, you know, feel the environment of the school and the class like they may have done before. And so I think it's super important for schools to figure out ways to stay really connected and engaged with parents right now. Um, And I can see where if, if, parents already felt um, marginalized because of inequities or racism or whatever, then it's even worse now when they can't even go into the building. So I think, you know, if, if you have any suggestions for how child care providers, how early childhood can reach out and, and connect more, then I'm sure we'd love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I mean, for me, it's like if we have a pandemic happening here, right? We need to communicate that there is a pandemic. And so that means that we actually have to make communication almost center. Like that has to be central because literally one day you're open, the next day you have a cluster, you have to close. So to me, it's actually critically important that schools to me actually value that. Like, right, teach my kids the A's and B's and all these, all these things and social emotion and all that. But the one thing I think that they need to do is actually learn to communicate in a way that is authentic. And then, and it's also immediate, right? Not waiting to say, let me do the blast out to the, you know, to the families, you know, Friday or Saturday. It's like, how do we communicate? We actually have technology right now. You can actually push out things uh, much quicker, but beyond just pushing out the master stuff, I think we have to actually just say, let's make sure that we are checking in our families. So if there are sort of support teams that we've had, I think we have to repurpose our support staff to maybe say, let's make sure that we are checking in on either our high level families. This is where I think we need to become able to triage, right? In some ways, not every family needs you, but I think we have to become really sophisticated and triage and not because you're poor that you need something is that some families just need a different set of of support. And we need to figure it out in a way that's strength-based and not about, oh, you're poor, so you must need something, right? But it's in a way of what can I do to help you, especially in a time when all of us are stressed and we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next, is we think we have to begin to have systems that actually allows you to triage and treat families in a more personalized way. Again, for some, it's hard. For others, it's easier. But I think we have to begin to think much more thoughtfully about how do we use tools and resources that help us identify, okay, family, red, the red code family, we need to make sure we check in on them, support them, help them, do whatever we can to get them situated. For family green, you know, they're pretty all good. Maybe send an email, a text message, and they're all good. We have to begin to sort of be much more sophisticated than sort of doing the same thing and hoping for different results. So I would say the communication strategy is important. And I think, again, because of the way COVID happened, if you remember, there was a lot of community building happening, right? People, like families literally had to figure out, oh, shucks, I got to figure out child care because some of us have to leave the house. And so I think we actually have to also ask families, what could we do different? Like, why did you choose, what did you do during this, you know, time we were all locked in, but you had to go to work? What is it you leaned on? What did you love about that? What, you know, so I think we just have to ask families what works for you and where possible, we need to recreate that. I think this idea, we should treat them as customers in many ways, right? We don't say those words, but I think we have to begin to be much more understanding that these are customers in many ways. And if we don't meet your needs because of COVID, we can find another way, right? And this is what we're finding from some of the, the reports is that up to 20% of families may not come back. So how do we ensure that we have a program that supports families? Well, one of the things that I heard you say that when you make your change to Frank Porter Graham, you're going to also be looking at uh, public policy and looking at things that you could do through your center 
to impact or change some of the institutional racism practices or, or policies that have existed. And one of my, I think you probably would remember from our time in Washington together that I'm always going to bring up has to do with rural children and rural families. And that some of the things that we're talking about with children who are living in areas where broadband is not there or it's a problem. And if everything was technology based, then again, inequity, how do you address the the problems there with school, with communication, with isolationism, with mental health? And that's a whole bunch of things that any one of them would take a lifetime probably to address. But with regard to policies and uh, some of the things that you think could be reasonably addressed, because some of them are going to take some time. But I think COVID also pointed out all the gaps that we have in our systems and highlighted some of the real major issues we've known. But now it's become much more evident, for instance, to the business community that, hey, you do need child care. If you want your people to go back to work, you better think of that. This right. is That's connected. Right. But when you start your work at Frank Porter Graham, what's one of the first things that you think you would begin to look at or take into account when you're th- thinking about policy change or policy issues? Sure, there's so many. But I think, I mean, but I think to your to your question. So the beauty is before I even went to high school, I, I came to high school, I actually was at the University of Nebraska. Nebraska is a state of about 2 million people. And you have, you have the metro areas of Omaha and then the college town of Lincoln. But what you have, they call it frontier. Like literally is the frontier of America. And what I literally remember is how is there's one thing to be here and I'm in North Carolina. So there's one thing to sort of be rural and sort of, you know, be far from each other. It's another thing when literally the most things you see will be sort of animals, right. And farms. And imagine a family where there's probably 10 families, right. And they're, they're literally the whole County. That is crazy. And how do you, how do you create a system of any kind? How, like, why do you think about broadband? Like all those things, I think, um, it rem- so what it, it tells me, and I think that's a really good question, Kathy, is that the issue is that everything is not going to be solvable by technology. And in many instances, technology has some pros and some cons to it, right? Be- you know, so, we, so I think that's, we have to think through that. But for me, I feel like one of the things I know for sure that I, ha- that I think is critically important, and I just feel like I cannot if I don't do it, is really to think about just Black families across the, the, the country who live in not just urban sectors, but who live in rural communities. So for me, I would say that while I recognize exactly the issues of the sometimes the rural urban divide, there's pros and cons for rural versus urban. Um, but I recognize that for black people in particular who live in rural communities, there's actually much more dire, right? There's, there's, there's a left, there's a sense of both isolation but also a level of not feeling safe, right? Psychological terror that a lot of us don't hear about. So for me, I would actually want to really understand how are Black families and children thriving across the many regions that they exist. And I think that in itself can begin to help uncover how do we also help other children from different you know, backgrounds and different places. But for me, I feel like part of my work is going to be how do we make racism real? And I think a lot of times we have to sort of talk about the elephant in the room. And a lot of times it's about black people um, and the anti-blackness and that exists across the ways. And many of our policies, unfortunately, were actually crafted specifically with an anti-black lens to it. And I think for me, anything about equity, when you put a race layer on it, you realize that really it has this pernicious nature of trying to um, minimize the opportunities that black people particularly would have 
to reach their full potential, to meet, reach their full goal. So for me, I would start there. And then I think that there are frameworks and policy frameworks that can be developed. I think in the end, enhances children who live in rural communities, children who are linguistically diverse, children who are immigrants, children who have special needs. So for me, I feel when you have the overlay of race and that, when that could be fully, fully embraced and addressed, I think that the other challenges that we have would be a lot easier. We could go on and talk for hours. Uh, but uh, I do want to thank you so much for your contributions to date, and you've got many more, it sounds like, to come. Hopefully that we can do some work together in the future now that we know where each of us happen to be located. And so, Dr. Musgrove, would you have any final words before we let Dr. Ruka get back to her, her other one of her other roles as parent? <laughs> It's been a great pleasure to have Dr. Yelma Aruka with us today. Thank you so much for joining us on Ed's Up. And we look forward to further conversations about how do we ensure that all children from all backgrounds, from all homes, have an, uh, an opportunity to be successful and to live the life that they dream of. So thank you for the work that you do to promote that. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your work. I appreciate it. Look forward to next time. Our poem today is To Catch a Fish by Eloise Greenfield. This is from PoetryFoundation.org. It takes more than a wish to catch a fish. You take the hook, you add the bait, you concentrate, and then you wait, you wait, you wait. But not a bite. The fish don't have an appetite. So tell them what good bait you've got and how your bait can hit the spot. This works a whole lot better than a wish if you really want to catch a fish. That's To Catch a Fish by Eloise Greenfield, poetryfoundation.org. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.